2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Europeans have been writing about China for centuries, ever since the Travels of Marco Polo described the country as a faraway and mystical kingdom. European thinkers like Voltaire and Montesquieu used China to support their own theories of political philosophy. Writers in early modernity tried to explain why China was falling behind. And then contemporary thinkers in the 20th century tried to talk about how Maoist China represented true revolutionary potential. China Through European Eyes, 800 Years of Cultural Intellectual Encounter, edited by Professor Kerry Brown and Gemma Chang Erdung, collects an assortment of these observations written over several centuries from illustrious writers like Matteo Ricci, Voltaire, Leibniz, Weber, Marx, Beauvoir, and many others. Kerry Brown is Professor of Chinese Studies and Director of the Lao Institute at King's College London. Uh, he is the co-editor of the Journal of Current Chinese Affairs, run by the German Institute for Global Affairs in Hamburg. He's associate of the Asia Pacific Program at Chatham House, London. From 1998-2005, he worked at the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office as First Secretary at the Beijing Embassy in Beijing, and then as head of the Indonesia, Philippine, and East Timor section. He is the author of almost 20 books on modern Chinese politics. In this interview, Carrie and I talk about the way Europeans understood China and how that changed and shifted over eight centuries, and the ways in which these observations parallel the way we talk about China today. So, Carrie, thank you so much for joining me on the Asia View Books podcast today. Um, perhaps it's best to start with the topic of the book. Why focus on Europe's conception of China rather than China itself? What makes how Europe understands China, how it sees, how how it saw um, that civilization over centuries, an interesting thing to study and analyze?
1: Yeah, the relationship between Europe as a continent and China as a continental power is a long-standing one I think that's often forgotten. And so my idea in putting together these key intellectual figures in Europe, or most of them were key intellectual figures, was to give some sense of how long the relationship had been and how it had always been a significant relationship so that figures as important in Europe's cultural intellectual history, like Leibniz, Hegel, Marx, Bertrand Russell, Max Weber. I mean, these are all really, really formidable figures in their own right, in their discipline areas. But it was worth their time to write quite a lot about China and to write with quite a deep level of engagement. So I didn't write about China as an internal or a domestic issue about whether what they thought about China was right or wrong. I really just wanted to put together their ideas about what their perception of China was. And the majority of them had never really visited until the 20th century. You don't really get people visiting China. It was mostly a mediated relationship where people like Leibniz and Voltaire and Montesquieu knew about China through the sources of Jesuits who were based in China and then wrote uh, back for Europeans. In the 20th century, you've got figures like Bertrand Russell, who did go to China, I think in 1922, To Peking University, and then later uh, the figures that I've got, Orland Barthes, Julia Kristeva, and Simon de Beauvoir, they all visited China. So I think this captures really significant voices over a fairly extensive period of time and shows that there's a definite kind of structure of Chinese um, perceptions in Europe, uh, and that's an important history that we shouldn't lose sight of.
0: Yeah, I mean, in reading your book, it's a real kind of who's who of big European thinkers, you know, um, Montesquieu, Voltaire, uh, Russell, um, Beauvoir. Near the end of the book, um, y- you kind of divide your texts into into four sections, um, and they're quite broad sections, I know, but into four sections: um, medieval, Renaissance texts, um, Enlightenment texts, texts from early modernity, and then contemporary texts. You know, why separate them into these kind of four
1: broad time periods? So the division into four historic periods is really to acknowledge the fact that I think Europe's conceptualization of its history or the development of European history is into those four discrete periods. So you have the late, I suppose you call it the late medieval period, or the beginnings of modernity, when the Jesuits started to go to China in the 16th century, and where you had uh, kind of trade flows that started. And then you really have the enlightenment period in which China became much more present in European thinking because of the significant amount of documents from Jesuits and other missionaries who went to China and trade too. And then you have the extraordinary period of the early modern period and the modern period where you can see what some people have described as the great divergence, the industrialization of Europe and the extraordinary technological expansion of Europe and this extraordinary period in which it's not, not just a an issue for Europe, but for the world that Europe kind of became this incredible kind of powerhouse. And of course, all of those different periods had different, imp- carried different implications for China and views towards China, uh, and they kind of reshaped the relationship with China because of the ways in which China, which Europe was going through these transformations and developments.
0: So let's start with some of the earliest writing you talk about in, in your book. Um, you have extracts from from Marco Polo, you have extracts from Matteo Ricci. Um, What are some of the common features of of the earliest writings on China?
1: Well, obviously, the great outlier is Marco Polo, because this is such a historically important document, although it's not directly by him. It was apparently uh, kind of retold from someone he was stuck in prison with. Uh, So it's an unusual book. But created an imagination of China, which I think had an enormous, and still has an enormous impact. Marco Polo is still a very celebrated figure. Really sort of underline how remote and different China was, but the fact that it was accessible. Now, this would have been in the Yuan dynasty, uh, at the very beginnings of the Yuan dynasty, so totally different kind of China we're talking about. Matteo Ricci is a different kind of figure and a really important figure in this book and a little bit of his work is included uh, largely because he was such a pathbreaker although there were previous missionaries very uh, kind of um, a few that had gone to China before him and kind of set the uh, path up for him to travel along in many ways he typifies this kind of tension I suppose in any European towards admiring China's Extraordinary civilization and history, but also trying to kind of create a sense of their own identity and how do they do that after such intense and long exposure to something so different. So, Matteo Ricci is still a very important figure. And these kind of two great figures, um, both ironically from Italy, um, were the framers, I suppose, of the relationship that we inherit today. I mean, they were the kind of great pathbreakers. So it was inevitable that they had to be part of this collection. Um, it's also important to acknowledge, of course, that there were many others that were writing, certainly at the time of Matteo Ricci or just after him. So he wasn't an isolated figure, but he was certainly the most pre- predominant and the, in, in many ways the most symbolic.
0: So the next section is, is kind of the, the Enlightenment section where you have three extracts from, um, I believe it's what Voltaire, Montesquieu, and Leibniz. Um, and, you know, it's funny. They, they all refer to China um, to make domestic political arguments. Uh, and, you know, what did, so I guess, what did China represent to these Enlightenment thinkers that it was a place they never visited, all kind of internalized through through other sources, yet became very useful to these thinkers as a way to put forward domestic arguments or arguments about European political theory?
2: The-
1: the kind of transformations that europe was going through in the 17th and 18th century in terms of the creation of a kind of a scientific view of the world of empirically led much more evidence-based view which challenged a lot of the perceived previous conceptions and worldviews. i mean this is an incredible period for the history of humanity not just for the history of europe and so at the center of this, of course, are uh, ideas about what it was to be a human, what it was to be European, what did it mean to say that we were kind of you know relating to a physical world and how did that world operate? And I think Vol- Voltaire, Montesquieu, and Leibniz, in different ways, were part of this remarkable and extraordinary debate, the Enlightenment debate, which of course still has great significance today. I think it's true, you have to acknowledge that there conclusions were quite different. Voltaire was very attracted by the meritocratic Confucian system that he saw of scholar officials in China and seemed to be kind of more egalitarian, ironically, because anyone could take the Confucian exams and end up as an official, whereas Montesquieu drew somewhat different conclusions in his The Spirit of the Laws and, of course, saw kind of the Oriental governance system by that he meant what I presume is the Chinese system, to be an autocratic one, and uh, you know, one that was not attractive for Enlightenment Westerners. And then Leibniz, who's a much more sophisticated thinker about China, I think, than either Voltaire or Montesquieu, because he neither idealizes nor necessarily demonizes or criticizes, but is led by this sort of spirit of inquiry to find out what it is that China is and what sense one can make of it. And there's all sorts of interesting ideas about him being influenced by, for instance, exposure to the uh, Yijing, the I Ching, the famous book of divination from the Shang dynasty thousands of years before, and whether this impacted on his monad theory. I mean, this is an extraordinary kind of dialogue, even though, uh, again, I stress, no Chinese were really coming to Europe then. Very few were coming to study, uh, for instance, in Naples at a seminary there, but very, very few Uh, were going from Europe to China too. I mean, missionaries, but, you know, tiny numbers. But there was still an extraordinary kind of interest. And so I think this is why this period is so seminal and important and important to re-remember now, uh, because I think it raises lots of the issues about how as Europeans, we see China, understand China, make sense of China in ways which are empirical, proportionate, uh, but also don't lose sight of the fact that we obviously clearly have a very different worldview.
0: You know, it's it's interesting you talk about, um, you know, having these views of China being rooted in kind of something empirical, something real. And, you know, one thing that struck me as as you kind of move to the third section with kind of dealing with um, writings on China in, let's say, early modernity, starting with the McCartney expedition. You know, I wonder if in some ways greater contact with China and greater contact in China with the, I guess the power differential you started to have between Europe and China led to, um, the changing views of the country, you know, ones that started to highlight, um, how it was maybe more backward, how it was being held back, um, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yes, it's an interesting development. I think in the 18th century, certainly in Britain, there was a, extraordinary period of enthusiasm for Chinese culture, Chinoiserie, I think it was uh, called, there was uh, quite a lot of idealization of China. Um, And China figured, you you know, kind of in people's daily lives in a weird way, the willow pattern, uh, porcelain, the importation of porcelain, the importation of tea. In many ways, people have argued that China kind of created uh, parts of European identity because, of course, we think of these things now Uh, as being uh, intrinsic parts of what it is to be British or European. Um, And yeah, of course, they were introduced after the encounter with China. I think the change is that, of course, familiarity breeds to some degree contempt. And that's really what we've seen over the last 300 years of China, which has become more and more sharply into focus, and where there's an acceptance of really big differences. And how, how do you deal with those? There's not so... Um, many things you can just dismiss of being exotic or unusual or strange, but some which are, of course, very alien. And I suppose the McCartney ex, um, uh, sort of embassy to China and the Amherst one, which happened happened about 20 years after this from Britain, there were two sort of main embassies. They weren't the only ones. I mean, there were many Dutch embassies from a 100 or so years before this. There were Portuguese involvement with China from the 16th century. I mean, there was a lot of different kind of involvement. But I think these were really focused so much on actually undertaking practical things, trade, and having a structure for trade and a diplomatic structure for trade, that they were very, very prosaic. They weren't remotely just about having cultural, intellectual contact. So, though George McCartney, I mean, I quote from John Burrow, um, one of the people that went with him on this mission, is not an intellect, you know, he's not a sort of significant intellectual figure, of course, uh, nor was John Burrow. The way they reported this encounter did have a big, big impact on the most important economy and power in Europe at this time, uh, Britain, as it was going through industrialization. And I suppose the interpretation since then of, you know, why didn't this work? Why did the Qing uh, court and the Qianlong Emperor reject, it seems, this? Did the visiting mission really understand what the, they were trying to do? Did they understand any of the dynamics of what was happening in China at the time? I mean, these are fascinating questions historians have written about. But what you can't um, deny is that it was a kind of contact which was almost inevitable and had to happen. And although it itself didn't succeed in 1793 when McCartney's embassy, 1794 when it went to China, it started a process of discussion and dialogue which has had to continue whether either side like it till
2: this day. Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. So I, I wanted to touch briefly
0: on Marx's writing on China. Which um, you know, first of all, is pretty few and far between. Marx didn't write on China very much, despite the fact that Marx became a huge influence on China um, in in the twentieth century. Um, but also, I think that, that that his analysis of what was going on in the Second Opium War is 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 quite. Um, contemporary, uh, in the sense that it, it deals with the economic causes, deals with imperialism. Um, and so I wonder if you might talk a little bit about Marx's analysis of China um, and whether that was a common view at the time.
1: Yeah, Marx as a theorist certainly doesn't think a great deal about China and regards China as not the place that is of most interest for his theory and the, the development of that theory. And that's widely accepted that his prediction was that it would be in Britain, probably in industrialized countries that had a class of important capitalists where change that he envisaged would come, not China, which he regarded as agrarian and backward and small artisans, not really in the industrial infrastructure at all. And so that's one of the great ironies that, of course, this is precisely the place where his ideas had most impact uh, and still have impact Certainly what he wrote about the um, Second Imperial, Sec Second Opium War uh, in the late 1850s in ironically one of the very few publications that would pay him to publish his things the New York, I think it's the New York Post um, was more critical, it was really using this issue of colonisation to be very critical of Britain and Britain's policy. It, it wasn't really about China at all, it was just a case of China being the in Marx's ideas sort of victim of this aggressive and exploitative um, and hegemonistic behavior. And so in a sense of all the writers in this book, you could say that Marx is the least interested in China as China, and the least interested in what China might be in itself. He's interested in how China figures in British politics So, quite parochial, actually, very ironically, quite parochial. At the time he was writing, of course, I produced some good, you know, kind of length material from Hegel. Hegel, you could say, also had a very theoretical and abstract view of what China was and slotted it into this vast philosophy of history. Although his treatment and understanding of some elements of China's historic development and contemporary history are more than marx i mean you know he kind of has to produce some uh, idea of you know his notion of what china actually was in itself um the other writers from this period were people who actually visited china had some contact with china so marx has to be in this book he's such an insignificant figure i think he has to be he did write some things about china but you could say that he's really an outlier the rest at least were interested in knowing what china was i think china so Marx is just a kind of proxy for other issues that he's more interested in writing about.
0: So the last period of your book is concerns writers in the 50s and 60s who, you know, writing during Maoist China, who see China as a place of revolutionary potential. So what did Maoist China kind of before there was greater awareness of things like the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution hadn't happened yet? Um I guess one can say the excesses of Maoist China hadn't really come to the fore. What did Maoist China mean to European thinkers in the, let's say, the the two decades following the Second World War?
1: So the Maoist period from 1949 and the establishment of the People's Republic was also a period in which there was not a huge amount of contact between European powers and China. Britain had to recognize the People's Republic in 1950 and was amongst the earliest Europeans to do so because of Hong Kong and its interests there. Uh, But a lot of other powers, I mean, France didn't have formal relations until I think the 1960s, and others not until the 1970s or even later. So you didn't have a huge amount of uh, kind of intercourse between the two uh, European countries and China. You didn't have visits very often and when you did have visits, they were by you know, people that were regarded as being sympathetic or useful to the Maoist regime. Uh, this was not an easy thing to do. So Simone de Beauvoir's visit in the 1950s and Jean-Paul Sartre her um, partner um, were most unusual because they were, they were regarded as being very um, you know, kind of ideologically sympathetic to the uh, Maoist regime. And in fact, as you can see in the selection from Simone de Beauvoir's account of her visit, I mean, this is true. I mean, it's a very positive view of what China's doing. Um, The later writers in the 1970s, it's slightly different. Then China really was closed off to the outside world because of the Cultural Revolution. And, uh, you know, Roland Barthes Julia Kristeva were part of a very small delegation at the same time that went to China. And in many ways, their views are not wholly predictable because I think Roland Barthes certainly didn't appreciate and admire what he saw, though more for cultural reasons than political ones. And Julia Kristeva was much more interested in the kind of issues of feminism and gender politics. So they kind of looked at very, very different things. But what you do see is the role of ideology by Europeans being important. Uh, Those that dealt with China, that could interact with China and engage with China were um, those that were likely to be fairly sympathetic to the regime's aims, There were plenty of others that were writing very critically about China, like Simon Leys and uh, Pierre de Wichmann, the famous sinologist. I haven't included them in the book because it's slightly different. They were recognized as Sinologists rather than general sort of intellectual figures, uh, although of course their work was very, very important. I finished the book with selections from the 1970s because after 1978 and opening up and reform, and the Deng Xiaoping reforms, China became much more open. In fact, it's become the norm rather than the exception for intellectual figures, um, you know, like uh, Habermas and people like this, the philosopher to go to China. I mean, Jacques Derrida, the, 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 the French philosopher, certainly went to China in the early 2000s. I mean, so you could have made a, you know, kind of a, a whole book of that interaction. But I think that that story is better known than the one that I'm trying to tell prior to 1978.
0: So I want to end our conversation by asking about, you know, in in the process of choosing these extracts, compiling these texts together, um, whether you were struck by parallels to how, let's say, we used to talk about China and the way we talk about China today, you know, uh, there was one comment in your chapter on the Enlightenment thinkers where you can kind of separate out their views into three categories. Uh which I believe were idealists, universalists, and realists, which uh, gel pretty closely to how people talk about China today. Um, and I wonder if there were kind of other parallels like that that you kind of noticed as you were putting this
1: collection together. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I think the, the fundamental lesson that anyone would draw from this book uh, is is that there's always been, so there's a the big relationship between Europe and China, which is longstanding. And they have certainly, certainly Europeans have really thought long and hard about China for a long time. And I think Chinese have about Europe, but I'm, I'm obviously not covering that in this book. That will be a separate exercise. I suppose the second thing is therefore for today, it's important to acknowledge that there's always been a tension between the ideals of China, you know, what the European ideal of Chinese culture, civilization, history, ancient, you know, kind of old power that's very different is, and how it embraces that difference and makes sense of it. And that's divided between those who I think found China's perceived difference to them as refreshing and important and could engage with it, and those who certainly were much more critical and felt this to be much more problematic and problematized it in a different way. And I think that tension is there to this day. Uh, Europeans probably still have a fairly kind of split idea of what China is. Um, I think we can capture that in the idea of China being this big and important market. Um, And yet also this um, kind of place where the values are not the same, the political values are certainly not the same and therefore uh, much more negative and hostile. I think those um, structures of the positive and the negative, they've been there a long time. Uh, they are still there, though in a different kind of guise. And I think Europeans you know, have a lot of ways in which they can reflect on how these came to be, whether they are appropriate today in view of the interaction, and the complexity and the familiarity of China, which is certainly more than it's ever been before, and the ways in which we can kind of think of that history creating a new sort of viewpoint our uh, uh, idea towards China. So um, I think that's the key conclusions I, I hope uh, people looking at this book will draw. And it's certainly the thing that really struck me as I was assembling this material and thinking about it.
0: So I think with that, that ends our interview with Carrie Brown, editor of the new collection, China Through European Eyes, 800 Years of Cultural and Intellectual Encounter. Kerry, I actually have a couple more questions for you um, to wrap things up. Uh, where can people find your work, and what's next for you?
1: Okay, they can find my work on www.kerry-brown.co.uk uh, and they can also find where to uh, get hold of this book and a sample chapter uh, of the book, the introduction. So uh, my website is which is basically my name with a hyphen in the middle of it, uh, .co.uk. That's where they can find my work. I'm working at the moment um, on an actual history, uh, a more granular history of Britain's relations with China over the last 500 years, uh, which will be the first time that's really been written as a a comprehensive history rather than a history of particular eras. Uh, And I hope that this will help British people to understand their deep background with China and their deep engagement with China. So that's my current project.
0: You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to Asia to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's Reviews Plural. And you can find Author Interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksnetwork.com. They are be podcasts on your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Aaron Murphy, author of Burmese Haze US Policy and Myanmar's Opening and Closing. But before then, Carrie, thank you so much for joining me today.